0: Did you know that
1: one of the most essential elements in the life of Queen Esther was the spirit of God and the spirit of prophecy upon her life? Beloved saints, many of us might become a bit uncomfortable with the term, the spirit of prophecy. Hi, I'm Dr. Michelle Corral, and today I want to teach you about a first-century Jewish term that was used not only and frequented not only in the synagogues throughout the first century, but also this term is going to help us understand the role of the Holy Spirit in your life and in my life. And that is the Holy Spirit, when He comes to us, brings us the anointing of prophecy in our lives. But I want you to know something. Prophecy is not limited to thus saith the Lord. I want you to understand that prophecy is so much more. And one of the individuals that never said, thus saith the Lord, but was imbued with the spirit of prophecy is Esther. So today I'm going to take you into the depths of teaching to show you the biblical version and the Hebrew scriptures and the meaning of the spirit of prophecy. Not only do we see it in the book of Revelation, the 19th chapter in the 10th verse, the last line that says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, but also I want you to see its use in the synagogue, its use among the Hebrew population in the first century. And why is that essential to us? Because all of the authors of the New Testament were first century Jews. So let's get busy and let's study the Word of God today so that I can take you into the depths of learning about the person, power, and anointing of the Holy Spirit like I believe you might not have seen it before. But first, I want to invite you to be part of our podcast family and you can do that by going to mydayofdestiny.com. You know, mydayofdestiny.com is the website for our podcasts that are featured on nationwide platforms across the across the United States, including Spotify and many other nationwide platforms where you can hear the teachings that you are getting today and download our other teachings that belong to segments of teachings and i also want to invite you when you go to our website you can order my book secrets of the anointing you know this book secrets of the anointing was featured on Sid Roth's It's Supernatural. And I believe it will be a blessing to you after over 45 years experience, I've been baptized in the Spirit now over 50 years. And I believe what I experienced in the era of Catherine Coleman and throughout the years being in the classic charismatic era, working in Breath of the Spirit Ministries, which we founded in 1978, which is dedicated to the works, to the ministries, and to the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I believe in this book, you will extract secrets and you will extract knowledge and you will be able to understand how the Holy Spirit can use you in your life. Because our objective is for you to go forward into your destiny and for you to learn how to become sensitive to the Spirit of God, how you can go forward in knowledge and in understanding with skill and wisdom and flow in the full anointing and power that the Spirit of God has ordained for you in your life. So go to the website, order Secrets of the Anointing. And now let's get ready for today's teaching. Today, I would like you to open your Bibles to the book of Esther and we are going to look at Esther chapter 5 and we are going to go to verse 1 and verse 2. Today I'm going to be speaking to you about the spirit of prophecy and the attributes of prophecy, the properties of prophecy in the life of Queen Esther and what the properties of prophecy actually are. How do they operate? And is there such a thing as the properties of prophecy that are seen in the scripture? How do we operate in them? How do we access them in our lives? Let's look at the word of God. Going to the book of Esther in the fifth chapter, we're going to look at the scripture. The Bible says, and it came to pass on the third day that Esther put upon her royal apparel. And she stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house, over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house, over against the gate of the house. Doesn't that sound a bit boring? Doesn't that sound a tad redundant? And the answer to that. Is it's definitely not boring, but it most certainly is a tad redundant. Why is this done? First of all, I want you to understand that the author of Scripture did it deliberately. Why? Because the word house that is repeated four times in verse 1 is actually a literary device. And to the Jew, the word house is also the word temple. You see, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet is bet, which actually is shaped like the door entrance into the house of God. So I want you to understand when he said the word house four times, he was telling us that Esther was not only standing in the midst of the real court of King Ahasuerus or King Ahasuerus, but God wants us to understand that Esther was standing in the presence of God. She was literally in the presence of God, in the inner court of the house of God. Let us continue. Notice the Bible goes out of its way to tell us that Esther also, beloved saints, the Bible says she was in the royal house over against the gate of the house. What does this mean? In the royal house over against the gate of the house? Do we really need to know that she was standing near the gate of the house? Is that really significant? How does that actually affect our destiny in 2022 that Esther was near the gate of the house? It absolutely affects our destiny and it's absolutely significant or it would not be in scripture. These things are not written in the Bible, so we know they happened. Everything in the Bible is personal, powerful, prophetic, and relevant. So what's the relevance of the gate? Why is the gate a place of importance? So important that the author of this book, Mordecai, actually tells us that Esther is in the house four times to tell us she's in the presence of God. She's in the temple that's not made with hands. She's standing in the presence of the Almighty. But the Bible is also telling us she's at the gate what does that mean? In Ezekiel chapter 43, verse four, the Bible tells us that Ezekiel saw the vision of the glory of God entering the house by way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. So the text is teaching us that Esther was in the place of God's presence and that her life was so consecrated to God and that that moment, that miraculous moment with destiny, standing in the inner court with all of the royalty of God's presence upon her, that the gates of glory were opened and that Esther's life became a conduit by which the glory of God entered the court so that we will understand that Esther obtained this favor not based on herself, not based on her beauty, not based on she's Queen Esther, but based on the fact that she is so pleasing to God, that the heavens were opened and that her life being presented to God as a living sacrifice, her will that was just sacrificed to God in Esther 4.16 was such a significant sacrifice sacrifice in the eyes of God to do the will of God, to be willing to lay her life down in selfless, altruistic hesed, which is loving kindness, to do this hesed, this kindness for Israel, to lay her life down unto the death, cause the glory of God to be upon her. Now the question arises, does that have spiritual significance in our own life? This is not told to us just so we can sit back and marvel at the miracles God did for Esther. This is written so that you will know the pathway into the power of God in your own life. This is written so that when you read the Bible, you have a roadmap to success. You see, you don't have to live your life in confusion. You don't have to live your life wondering how am I going to be successful and how am I going to get to the next level. You don't have to work in the flesh at it. The Bible is filled with success secrets. And one of the little secrets that brings big success in the Bible is selflessness. You see, when God sees an individual that does not have their own personal power issues involved in their requests, those that are selflessly willing to offer their will on the altar to God for the sake of someone else's blessing, You see, Esther came to terms with why she was made queen. She came to terms that this was not about her. She came to terms that God entrusted her with this platform. And when God gives us a platform, the platform is not about us. The platform is not to be used for self-aggrandizement. You see, the book of Esther begins with nonstop obsession with self. How does that occur? It occurs through the banquet that King Ahasuerus causes to happen. The Bible says in Esther chapter one, and you will read it from verses one to five, that Ahasuerus throws a banquet in Shushan the palace for 180 days to show the excellency of his majesty. No, beloved saints, it was not to have a board meeting, to plan something industrious for his people. No, people, it was not a party so that he could give positions to others or to even make others feel better about themselves, that the king loved them, that they were so special that he invited them to his banquet. Quite on the contrary. This king who was obsessed with himself and obsessed with his kingdom and actually prized values that are completely anti-Bible values, could think of nothing more than to use his subjects as actually more benefit to his own self-aggrandizement. And I want you to understand that this is written in the Bible, not so we know it happened, but so that we can see the clashing contrast of platforms. One is going to use their platform for their self exaltation, the other is going to use their platform in great humility, great obedience to God, great purpose for the benefit of others. You see, God has already designed in his scripture so that we can see what biblical values are and how they produce profit in the earth and how a person can really succeed in life and what brings a person down. So here we see that Esther in her selflessness, came into that inner court. And the Bible literally reads in the Hebrew language in Esther chapter five, verse one, the Bible says, and let us look at it. And it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel. Can I read it to you Um, actually in English, but to tell you what the Hebrew actual meaning of the verse is? The actual meaning of the verse in Hebrew is not she put on her royal apparel, but that she put on royalty. There is a difference between putting on royal apparel, which is clothing, and putting on royalty. Because in our Western world, we do not have the concept of putting on royalty. But actually, royalty is a character trait. Malkut is a character trait. Um, When a person is striving for character development, and a person wants to reach the highest pinnacle of success that God has ordained for their life, when they want to reach the summit of success, when they want to reach that place of purpose so that they can be used to benefit others, we see that these character traits are actually listed throughout the Bible, and Malkut is one of them. So we see the Bible says, Esther put on malkut. This would be the literal meaning of the verse, which in Hebrew is called the pshat of the verse. But let's go a little deeper and let's make an investigation as to what this means and how it's actually used throughout the Hebrew scriptures. When we look at the fact that Esther put on royalty, One of the most quoted commentaries on the Hebrew scripture, one of the most quoted commentators of the Hebrew scriptures from all time is a rabbi by the name of Rashi. And Rashi actually gives us a shot on this verse. He gives us an interpretation. And his interpretation of this is that Esther put on the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKadosh, And actually, in the Hebrew sense of scripture, putting on the Ruach HaKadosh, putting on the Ruach spirit, HaKadosh, holy, so the Ruach HaKadosh translates to the Holy Spirit, is always rendered as the spirit of prophecy. And today, I want to explain to you how the Ruach HaKadosh is actually rendered as the Spirit of prophecy. First of all, beloved saints, I want to take you a little bit deeper and I'm not intimidated at all in teaching you in this method to learn the scriptures in a more exegetical manner because it's going to make you more prophetic. And this is the objective of our teaching today. So I want you to see that throughout the Hebrew scriptures, and especially I want you to understand in the time of the first century, and the first century is of particular importance to the believer. Why? Because Jesus was a first century Jew. And I want you to understand that all the Talmudim, all of his 12 disciples, uh, missing Judas, replaced with Matthias, they were all Torah observant, first century Jews. Therefore, we must understand that the language in the Galilee, where they were from, the language in the Galilee was not just Hebrew. The basic language, conversational language of the people in the first century, in first century Jewish Palestine, was Aramaic. Now, I want you to understand, dear people of God, that Aramaic is actually a dialect of Hebrew, but in the synagogue, the the Hebrew language was prized and it was used to teach Torah. It was used to read the daily readings of the Torah. It was used in basic uh, prayer services. We would see that all of this, the actual synagogue service, was done in Hebrew. However, When it came to the Hebrew scriptures, many of the population, the general population, did not speak Hebrew fluently. Therefore, there was a need in the first century to have what was called a maturganim. And the maturganim went to every synagogue. And remember, if you read Luke's gospel in the fourth chapter, you will see in just chapter four alone, five different citations of Jesus being in various synagogues. So the synagogue was the primary place of teaching outside the open air services. And remember, no rabbi has ever had the multitudes, nor has any rabbi ever attracted the tens of thousands that Jesus attracted But I want you to see that in the actual synagogue service itself, there was the need for the maturganim. The maturganim would translate the Hebrew scriptures into Aramaic. Why are you even telling us this, Dr. Corral? Does it really matter? And does this really relate to Esther? And the answer to that is yes, because I want to show you the background of the mindset in the first century of how the Holy Spirit was perceived in the Jewish culture in the first century. So that when you read the New Testament scriptures, you have a broader understanding of what the scripture is teaching us so that you might understand the Holy Spirit and his work in a greater dimension than you have ever understood him before. So first of all, I want you to see that as the Maturganim would translate the Hebrew scriptures when this in the synagogue, when the readings would take place, we see that in the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Aramaic, which are called Targums, whenever the Holy Spirit, term Holy Spirit or Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Lord is used throughout the Aramaic translations. The spirit of God is also known as the spirit of prophecy. Let me give you some examples. First, I'm going to give you statistics. Then I will give you examples from the text itself. First, I'm going to give you that out of the translations, the Aramaic translations, which are many different translators. We have onkelos, we have Um, Jonathan Ben Uziel, we have a whole host of translators that translated the Hebrew scriptures into Aramaic. Out of all of those translations, we have, beloved saints, um, from Genesis to Malachi, we have over 73 citations that where the Spirit of God is used, it is translated Spirit of prophecy or prophetic spirit. This is extremely significant. Why? Because logically we can prove, exegetically we can prove, culturally we can prove that in the mindset of the first century Jew, the Holy Spirit concerning His work within us was the spirit of prophecy very important. As a matter of fact, that if we calculate the 73 times that the Spirit of the Lord or the Spirit of God or the Spirit that comes from God is quoted in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Hebrew language translated into Aramaic, which is over 73 times when it translates the Spirit of Prophecy in the overall calculation of uses of the Spirit of God, we see 53% of the time, the Spirit of God is rendered as the Spirit of prophecy. Now, let's go a little more detailed on that, that when the Scriptures refer to the Spirit of God alone, just as emanating from God Himself, such as in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, we see it only as the Spirit of God and not the Spirit of prophecy. But when the Holy Spirit is working in an individual, such as Bezalel, As we see in Exodus chapter 31, looking at verses one and two, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Ur from the tribe of Judah. Now watch verse three. And I have filled him with the spirit of God in all wisdom, understanding and knowledge. Can we take that last line? And I have filled him with the spirit of God and translate it from Hebrew To Aramaic, it would read in our English language. And I have filled him with the spirit of prophecy from before the Lord in all wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Why is this so spiritually significant? Because we see wisdom, understanding, and knowledge as properties of prophecy. So important that prophecy is not just thus saith the lord and we see in esther an imbuing of the power of god because we see esther the prophetess not only is esther going to prophesy and let me tell you esther's prophecy esther's prophecy will make the hair on your arm stand on edge i'm telling you It will put goosebumps from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. Why? Because Esther, as a prophetess who is going to prophesy the future, in her third request to the king in Esther chapter 9, the Bible tells us in Esther chapter 9, looking at verse 10, that The victory came to the Jews and they slew over 500 in the palace at Shushan and the 10 sons of Haman were slain. Then it goes again in verse 12. And he says to Queen Esther, what is your request? Because in the Jews had a slaughter. They slaughtered 500 men in Shushan and also the 10 sons of Haman, they have hanged. And now I want you to understand that 10 sons of Haman are dead. Haman or Haman, his sons were actually dead on the 13th day of Adar when the Jews had victory over them that hated them. However, the king stretches out his golden scepter a third time to Esther. And he says, What further is your request, O Queen Esther? And Esther responds in a most peculiar manner. She says in Esther chapter 9, verse 13, I'm going to read it to you so that you understand this profound prophecy that was upon the woman of God, Esther the queen, Here we read it in the scripture. She says, if it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow according to today's decree and let the 10 sons of Haman, Haman hang on the gallows. Wait a minute. Weren't the ten sons of Haman already hung on the gallows? Is this some more topsy-turvy, upside-down instability in the book of Esther that we see? Or is this a profound prophecy that Esther is giving for the future? First, when she says, let it be done tomorrow. You see, in Hebrew, the word for tomorrow is not limited to 24 hours. The word tomorrow can also mean in the future. Esther saw something in the future and she could only relate to what she saw in the future similar to the 10 sons of Haman. The 10 sons of Haman who were actually henchmen for their father, Haman. Now, I want you to understand, she leaves us a major, major source of prophetic accuracy. She's not guessing. It's not some esoteric code that's out in some, you have to be some kind of biblical genius to try to figure it out. It's so clear. It's so concise. Because where the 10 sons of Haman are listed in Esther, where we see it from Esther 7 to to 10, we actually see the 10 sons of Haman listed here in the text, And these 10 sons of Haman, their names are listed. Now, why is this important? Because in every biblical scroll in ancient Hebrew, all the letters are always the same size and they run together. And you will see out of 700,000 letters that are in the Hebrew scriptures, you will only see 23 letters in the entire Hebrew Tanakh, in the entire Hebrew Bible that are a little bit larger or a little bit smaller and three, actually four of those letters, are in the book of Esther. She deliberately made, in the names of the ten sons of Haman, the letter Shin, which equals 300, because letters and numbers are the same. She made it small. Then she took the letter Tav, which equals 400, because letters and numbers are the same. She made it very small. Then she took the letter Zayin, which is in the name of the 10 sons of Haman, and she made it very, very small so that whoever reads it knows, look, Esther is telling us something. Esther is telling us something about 700, 300, and 400, and she's also telling us something about seven. So she's telling us something about 707. What else is she telling us? She is also telling us, in the letter of the last son of Haman, His name begins with a vav. She took that Hebrew vav and she made it so huge so that we would not miss it, so that we're actually seeing something about the sixth millennium. The sixth millennium, which is actually, if we put the years together, we come up with the biblical year from creation, which is 5707. 5707 written plain as day. You don't need to be a biblical scholar or genius to figure it out. All you have to do is translate, transliterate the letters into numbers which are extremely significant right there. She made it plain as as day. What happened in the year 5707 and what year is that to you and to me? It's the year 19 19- 46. It's the year of the Nuremberg trials. And Esther has prophesied that the 10 sons of Haman, she's requesting to the king of heaven, that the 10 sons of Haman hang on the gallows. And did you know that at the Nuremberg trials, the trials of atrocity against human beings, the trials of that convicted the Nazi war crimes of 6 million Jews to be exterminated because of the Bible and because of the God of Abraham and because of the biblical values that Adolf Hitler was so opposed to, I want you to see that the 10 sons of Haman hung as the result of Esther's prophecy. Now, beloved saint, she's foretelling it. She's telling us about the Holocaust, but this is not the only prophecy that Esther contains. Esther is imbued with the Ruach and how did she get the anointing? How did she get it? You see, the author of, of the book of Esther wants us to understand when Esther was 12 months in oil, six months in oils of myrrh, and six months in sweet spices, he's not interested in the cosmetics of how Esther looked. He's trying to tell us that Esther was submerged in the supernatural. He's trying to tell us that Esther emerged out of that place to take the place of King Saul. She is going to finish what Saul forfeited. She is going to destroy the Amalekite. She is going to bring Haman down in three days. And she does because Haman is an Agagite. He is the seed of Agag. And her ancient relative, Saul, disobeyed Samuel and refused to destroy Agag. And that gave Agag enough time to procreate another child. And now we understand how Haman, actually being of the seed of Agag, came on the earth with the design, the diabolical design, just like Adolf Hitler, to destroy all of the Jews. Beloved people, I want you to see that prophecy is so much more. This is why Esther prepared a plan. Her plan was one that involved word of knowledge. Did you know that when she presented her plan to the king, it was already given to her by divine design, that she already knew the reactions of how Haman would react, And King Ahasuerus would react. She set the the stage to bring Haman down. She was also operating in the word of wisdom. The spirit of prophecy upon her so strong to be able to ask the king, not at the beginning, oh, please help my people. No, instead she creates suspicion. And what does she do? She says, let it be if this is the king pleasing to the king. Let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Not saying them at the first, but him. In order to create suspicion against Haman, she's building the tension between the king and Haman. This could only be done by supernatural strategy that was given to her by the Holy Ghost. And the second night of the banquet, to be able to come in and to be a financial analyst. How could Esther be so wise as to actually say, I'm only saying this because the king's accounts are going to suffer damage. You see, he sold us, but he didn't sell us for a profit. And because he didn't sell us for a profit, it's to the king's disadvantage that we are sold. I want you to understand the wisdom That was used by Queen Esther, given to her by the Holy Ghost, because she already knew that Ahasuerus was a mass murderer. He didn't care. He was manufacturing genocide for a profit. And so you and I need to understand she was not stupid. She did not depend on her looks to move him to be able to get the answer she wanted. She heard from God. She was anointed by the Spirit. She was filled with the power of God. Just like I know, God wants to fill you today. So let's raise our hands. Let's receive the Spirit of prophecy. This is why baptism in the Spirit is so essential to all believers. And notice what is said when Peter said, this is that. Notice how Peter is going to actually include the spirit of prophecy in baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Acts chapter two, verse 17, this is that which shall come to pass. It shall come to pass, saith the Lord in the last day, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And upon my servants and upon my handmaidens will I pour out of my spirit and they shall prophesy. You see, beloved, you have received the spirit of prophecy within you. God wants you to learn how to be led by the spirit. That's the spirit of prophecy. God wants you to be like the book of Acts, How? When the Spirit bears witness. Remember, Peter said in Acts 11, the Spirit bade me go. God wants you to be able to be like Paul, who said, the Spirit of God witnesses to me in every place that bonds and chains await me. Beloved saints, the Spirit of God wants to lead you. He wants to reveal to you. He wants to reveal to you the same way he revealed the plan of God to Queen Esther, because he is the Spirit of prophecy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today that every person that is is listening to these words today will be so empowered with the spirit of prophecy. God, I pray that you would stir up the gift of God within them through the hearing of the word of God. Lord Jesus, just as in the book of Acts, the Holy Ghost fell on them that heard the word Even so, let the Holy Ghost fall on those who hear the word. Just as Job said, the rock poured me out rivers of oil. Lord, let the rock of God's word pour us out river after river after river of oil. God, we pray today that you will mantle your people with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge that we would be like Bezalel, God, that we would be filled with the spirit of God in all wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. For Jesus' sake, we pray, and everyone said, amen and amen. Again, friends, I want to invite you to mydayofdestiny.com, to our website concerning our podcast. And also, God is so good. He has enabled our ministry to be a blessing around the world with children who need to eat food, children who have not had food, children that are orphans such as our Nazir Children's Home, that we have been such a part of it, such a blessing to bring children in off the streets that are brought in our Christian home in Cairo, Egypt, that we worked on for so many years and is now established. Uh, We also want to invite you to be a part of helping the very impoverished families in India also children who have no parents in India. And we do this in Nadu, Tamil, India every single week, educating and feeding them. And also one of the projects dearest to our heart is the dear Pastor Silas, who works in India, who goes about evangelizing and raising up disciples, baptizing them in the name of Jesus under complete siege of persecution. But we praise God we're able to feed the new disciples and give them rice every day and feed them through Pastor Silas. We're so excited. And also to help the church in Pakistan and so many other places, orphans in Uganda, and our tremendous works in the Philippines. You can be part of Hesed. And Hesed means loving kindness. Today, you can sow our seed by going to our website, breathofthespirit.org. That's breathofthespirit.org. Push the donate button, or if you prefer to give through PushPay or text to give, our platform is PushPay, and you can do that by just simply dialing or pushing as seven seven nine seven seven, and when the little box comes up, you can text it to Hesed C H E S E D. That's seven seven nine. Tehesed C-H-E-S-E-D Thank you for giving and thank you for your love. We love you and may the anointing fall upon you today in Jesus' name. See you soon.
0: Thank you for joining us today on Day of Destiny. We invite you to our website at mydayofdestiny.com where you can easily access other podcasts and obtain your copy of Dr. Corral's latest book, Secrets of the Anointing. Also, we want to take this moment to invite you to engage in extending your hand of kindness by planting your seed or offering for multitudes that include orphans, providing water wells, providing medical supplies, clinics, feeding programs, and many other services to the suffering church and through efforts of evangelism worldwide. Just go to our website and click the donate button or text to give text HESED, C-H-E-S-E-D to seven, seven, nine, seven. That's HESED, C-H-E-S-E-D to seven, seven, nine, seven. You are also invited to visit Dr. Michelle Corral Facebook or Instagram. We look forward to having you encounter the anointing with us on our next day of destiny podcast.